Welcome to episode 11 of the Leading in the Climate Change World podcast from Olivier Methodrama. In this episode, we speak to respected environmentalist and broadcaster Jonathan Porritt. We jump straight in by asking who needs to do more and whether there are any countries or corporations taking climate change seriously enough. Robin and Jonathan discuss governmental action around the world and what happens when you're led by an authority that has interests in unethical practices. They focus on the UK and what our country has done right and what it needs to do to lead the fight for the future of the planet as well as the current roadblocks that stand in the way. Tying in with the Fridays for Future and global climate strikes, Jonathan discusses civic action and what society can do to enforce change, from small gestures to large-scale involvement. In terms of business leadership, Robin and Jonathan talk about how companies are better informed but are still missing the mark. What should they aim to achieve and how can government intervention help along the way? Please don't forget to visit our website, leadinginaclimatechangeworld.com as well as the podcast, we'll shortly be publishing interviews from people leading local businesses, community projects, and all sorts of sustainable initiatives. Follow us on Twitter as well, and please get in touch if you want to know more or suggest any podcast or web interviews. The email address is hello at leadinginaclimatechangeworld.com. Enjoy the podcast. So welcome everybody to this podcast in our series, Leading in a Climate Changed World. It's a great pleasure today to be talking with Jonathan Porritt, co-founder of Forum for the Future, and many other things. Jonathan is an eminent writer, broadcaster, commentator on sustainable development, probably one of the best qualified people in the UK, certainly, and possibly beyond that, that we talked to in this series. Forum for the Future was established in 1996 and is now the UK's leading sustainable development charity with 70 staff and over 100 partner organizations, including some of the world's leading companies. Jonathan is also a non-executive director of Wilmot Dixon Holdings, a trustee of the Ashton Awards for Sustainable Energy, and is involved in the work of many NGOs and charities as a patron or as a chair or as a special advisor. Formerly, he has worked as Director of Friends of the Earth, co-chair of the Green Party, of which he's still a member, chairman of UNED UK, chairman of Sustainability Southwest, the Southwest Roundtable for Sustainable Development, a trustee of WWF UK, and a member of the board of the Southwest Regional Development Agency. Jonathan stood down as chairman of the UK Sustainable Development Commission in July 2009 after nine years of providing high-level advice to government ministers and was installed as the Chancellor of Keele University in February 2012. His new book, The World We Made, was published in October 2013. And lastly, Jonathan received a CBE in January 2000 for services to environmental protection. So... First of all, Jonathan, a huge welcome and thank you for spending your time with us. As I said at the beginning, probably one of the best qualified and most uh, entrenched, if you like, uh, of our speakers around this topic of sustainable development, the climate emergency. So thanks for being with us today. And maybe we could just start with your assessment of where we are right now. Like your book is called The World We Made. What is the world that we have made so far? Yes, and it's written from the perspective of 2050. So the uh, protagonist who carries the weight of the story is living in 2050, looking back at what we had to do 
to make for a reasonably good life, a good, compassionate, just way of life in 2050. So it's a very upbeat book in that it does give us assurance that we have uh, at our disposal all the tools, the resources, the money, and the opportunity to overcome some of today's massive challenges and actually steer our way through to this better world by 2050. So it, it was a great book to be able to write because it allowed me to think very positively about many of the challenges we face and how to overcome them, basically. Um, a little bit different now, it has to be said, five, six years on. Um, I'm beginning to think that much of what I forecast needed to happen hasn't been happening fast enough. And in many ways, we find ourselves now in a much more problematic and threatening situation than we did then. So on balance, I guess I have reasons to be less hopeful about that path to a better world than I did eight years ago. But there are many things happening now which I think could still give us a chance to navigate that transition. So that takes us in a way right into one of the core parts of this dialogue, which is, can we make it? <laughs> you know, we do live in a very peculiar time now because although more and more people are genuinely waking up to the challenge of climate change in all its fullness, in all its urgency, they really are uh, beginning to see what this looks like. Um, they still don't properly understand the gravity of it. And they still think of it as a sort of environmental challenge along the lines that we've had to deal with lots of environmental challenges before. So that's the vast mass of people today. Those who've been involved in the climate change debate for a long time, going back to the 80s and the 90s even, or more, or more recently, they now are having a very different discussion amongst themselves. And I know that you've been talking with various protagonists in that debate. And the debate for the climate change cognoscenti, if you like, is perhaps it's already too late to do anything about it. And I can't help but notice that every year, more and more people end up in a kind of too late camp of one kind or another. So on the one hand, we have the vast majority of humankind not really understanding the nature of the climate challenge. On the other hand, we have this experts group sitting around saying, oh, is it too late or have we still got time to do it? And it's a very weird world because that's a very disconnected debate that is going on. So when people say, is it too late or not? There is only one answer to that. It is definitely too late to avoid massive dislocation in human societies around the world. And we can unpack some of that if you're in the mood or we can just park it. Is it too late to avoid runaway climate change, as in a phenomenon, a meta-phenomenon, which would engulf the whole human civilization, whole of human civilization in a series of increasingly apocalyptic impacts? That's the question. I believe it is not too late to avoid runaway climate change, but it is too late to avoid really horrendous pain and trauma for the whole of humankind as we try and cope with the, the way of the world as it is today. Right, so let's suppose that that's true. Let's suppose, <laughs> let's suppose that you're right in that assessment, and of course different people have different, slightly different assessments around that. Where are the green shoots? Where, where, is, where, is the, where are the seeds of what gives you that sense that it is still possible to avoid runaway climate change? What's the leadership that's emerging? Where do you see the grounds for optimism around that? 
Well, we have to thank the good things that have been with us for quite some time already, and that is starting with the technology. It is actually possible to fashion a, a perfectly good, functional, uh, just world for nine billion people with a rapid deployment of the technology available to us today, particularly starting with renewables and so on. But it's all there. It's not doesn't require um, other anything other than continued refinement in those different technologies. We also have no shortage of money. The world is awash with investment capital if we want to deploy it in the right kind of way. The problem, of course, is that we don't have the quality of leadership that we require in today's political elites. Indeed, if anything, we have a, as chronic a, a leadership deficit in today's political classes um, as, as I can ever remember. I think it's as bad as it's ever been in that regard. So the new things that we have to look to, slightly more than green shoots, but the, the, the way in which this now has to move forward is through mass civil action from society, which will force politicians to do much more than they're currently inclined to do. So when I talk about being hopeful about avoiding runaway climate change, my hope resides in this new combination of civic action of one kind or another, as reflected in Extinction Rebellion here in the UK, reflected in the global school strikes, reflected in a movement like the Sunshine Movement in the USA, which is a hugely positive galvanizing force for getting a bit of a grip on the US economy. I look to all of those new shoots, and it's in that that I think the opportunities for accelerated change lie, and it's in that accelerated change that we can still be hopeful. So that's very interesting. So it's really the grassroots civic unrest that yep. can, in your sense, still move the politicians who seem increasingly blinkered around it to change. That's your, yep. that's your sense of the direction. And where, where, where are you seeing evidence of that? I don't think our politicians are increasingly blinkered. I think they're still stuck in this um, one foot in the old world and one foot in the new world situation. Um, and I'm not talking now about the outliers. I'm not talking about the Trumps of this world or the Bolsonaros or Putin or anything else. I'm not talking about those because that's a particular set of um, autocratic uh, problems that, that we face, we have to deal with. But if you look at the governments around the world that are in, engaging climate change, they haven't yet taken the decision to get both feet into the future world. They're torn. They are invested in a lot of the old world. They are bound to those incumbent forces, particularly the world of fossil fuels, which makes it much harder for them to move as fast as they need to move. So the, the point about emphasizing the civic unrest, civil disobedience, as I would call it, is that that puts politicians in a very different and more painful place, particularly when that action is coming from young people. And I think that we are beginning to see a change in the moral nature of this discussion along the lines of intergenerational justice because once a serving politician comes to the conclusion that his or her contribution is entirely uh, dependent on screwing up the world for all generations to come it's a difficult moral place to occupy as a person who seeks to serve public interests and i'm very interested in the speed with which that 
shift in the moral tone of the debate will begin to put politicians in a different position, empower them, I hope, to introduce the changes that are necessary in a much more timely way. And have you seen or witnessed politicians shifting in that way? I think the UK is very interesting in this regard. Um, we were the first major economy to declare a climate emergency, our parliament to declare a climate emergency. Um, we have responded to the Extinction Rebellion presence on the streets of the UK in, in an interesting way. I mean, there are more politicians now who are prepared to tell the truth, the first demand of Extinction Rebellion. We're moving towards a citizens' assembly to start looking at what the solutions might be here in the UK. Um, I don't think our politicians are in a terribly good place at the moment because um, for anybody outside of the UK, as you probably understand, they are completely enthralled to the entire Brexit drama, which will just play and play and play. And there's almost no breathing space left in the political arena for anything other than bloody Brexit, if I can put it like that. So they're not in a good place, but I have seen the response is coming forward now. There's far less denialism. The UK was once home to tons of really uh, climate illiterate contrarians, denialists. You don't hear them in the media any longer. You don't hear them having any leverage on the political process any longer. So we've moved forward significantly in terms of understanding the nature of the challenge, even if we haven't seen commensurate actions to match that changing awareness. Right, and I guess that's where the rubber hits the road, really, is whether there's going to be action to follow, because, you know, talk is cheap, and, and people will, will talk what they need to talk in any given situation to, to be popular for the moment. But I'm, I'm curious whether you're seeing actions, whether it's from the UK leadership or, or any other leadership, also on a corporate level, because I know you do a lot of work with, with, within corporations as well. Where are you seeing actions that are happening at the speed and at the depth that are needed to bring about the changes that we, we require at the moment? Nowhere. Nowhere. I mean, if one's talking seriously about what's needed now, which is a dramatically accelerated decarbonization process, um, that you honestly can't point to a single country in the world where the actions are proportionate to the challenge. So, I can't give you reassurance on that score, Robin, because I just don't think it's there to be seen yet. I'm sure Christiana Figueres would, of course, tick me off at this point and say, look at Costa Rica. Costa Rica is doing everything that it needs to do to put itself in a really seriously progressive, resilient position for a world of accelerating climate change. So I might allow Costa Rica to squeeze through into my list of companies that are seriously on top of this. But even there, you've got the same complexity of dealing with the old world and the new world all at the same time. So if we can't see it anywhere, what are the grounds for your optimism? I don't call it optimism because I think optimism is folly. I call it hopefulness. And my cause for hope lies in the inevitability that today's civil unrest is going to grow and grow and grow and grow into a movement involving hundreds of millions of people around the world. And that sounds crazy, but there are a number of things that need to be brought to people's attention. By the end of 2020, 
two billion people in the world today will be under the age of 15. They are all hyper-connected. They are all using today's technologies to think very differently about the future that awaits them. And it's almost part of the course now that as a young person grows through those early years, they're beginning to see what the implications are from a climate point of view. For me, those young people are gonna form the core of a completely new politically active demographic in our world. And even if they haven't yet got the vote, they're gonna act in a way as if they had the vote by forcing politicians to take more account of their future interests and the interests of all future generations. So I am putting a lot of hope, if you like, in young people being better educated, more connected, and angrier about the um, betrayal of their generation by our generation. I'm also very struck that in the direct actions that are emerging, so Extinction Rebellion and elsewhere, you've got a far higher percentage of old people than would ever once have been the case. And I'm fascinated with this intergenerational um, story emerging about older generations, the boomers, if you like, those born in the, in the 50s and 60s, suddenly realizing that they have indeed lived off the fat of the land for the best part of 50, 60 years. And one of the consequences of that is that they're passing on the planet in a very degraded form to children and grandchildren. So this possibility of a generational span between young people on the one hand and older people on the other is, for me, really fascinating. I have in my mind this image of David Attenborough sitting next to Greta Thunberg, um, representing that older generation on the one hand, ready now to say this is morally intolerable and we have to correct this now because it's on our watch that this has happened and representing on the other hand, young people coming to their own set of conclusions about the betrayal of their generation and not letting it continue any further. Now in the middle, of course, are all the people whose minds have to be changed and who have to be jolted into a proper understanding of their responsibilities in this parlous situation. That's the theory of change, if you like, that allows me still to go to sleep at night. Right, well, thanks for elaborating that. and. If you're not seeing it, or well, maybe Costa Rica is the one example where, where on a national level we might be seeing the, the kind of changes that are required, are you seeing it in any corporations that you're connected to? Are you seeing leadership taking the issue as seriously as it needs to be taken and, and transforming their, their policies and practices? No. No, I'm not. I am seeing a lot of heightened awareness about the two, the twin challenges of accelerating climate change and biodiversity collapse. And companies are often much better informed about these things than politicians are, much, much better informed. Because they have supply chains that depend on the natural world or depend on continuity of supply, whatever it might be. And in response to that awareness, they are introducing much more progressive policies to decarbonize their own businesses, to work with their supply chains, to de-risk some of those problems, to think about water, soil, biodiversity, et cetera, et cetera. But it's still not commensurate with the full challenge. That's the problem. We've got lots and lots of companies moving now in the right direction, but still moving quite sedately. And one of the reasons why they're moving 
quite sedately, is there's no pressure from politicians. There's no regulatory process going on out there. There's no government in the world that's introducing new laws to say, that's it. This pattern of corporate behavior is finished. We're no longer going to put up with this any longer. They're not moving towards a carbon tax system, for instance, to internalize the cost that we currently externalize onto the environment. Companies know this. They know if they had to pay $100 a ton for every ton of CO2 they were responsible for emitting, I tell you, it would change overnight because the only way they could protect the interests of their shareholders then was by being ultra efficient in their management of all of their natural resources, all of their energy, all of the responsibilities they have um, to the natural world. So they don't get any pressure from the political class. And consumers, so us as consumers rather than us as citizens, yeah, they get some consumer pressure, but it's not consistent, it's not painful for them. It usually translates into little sort of um, very intense moments of anger about a company being seen to be doing something bad, but it's not about changing the nature of wealth creation in our economy. So there's not enough. So if we were to build out more of your theory of change, what I understand you to say is there's civil disobedience, a lot of young people in, engage, Greta Thunberg and the school strikes movement, Extinction Rebellion, people on the street saying we, we require change. You're also talking about the older generation who are also feeling maybe a sense of responsibility or guilt about the state of the world that we're passing on. And that these, are, these forces together are generating some kind of moral outrage and force. And then there's, then it would be great if you would elaborate a bit more precisely, maybe how you then see that pressure. What's the flow from there? That becomes a political imperative to pass laws that companies then follow like how does it how does it flow from there yeah i mean we're not able to rely on any other system other than politicians changing the laws which regulate markets in the global economy and um, we can't move this is the slight naivety i think about extinction rebellion which is very keen to have this citizens assembly and then it assumes that the government of the uk will simply implement everything the citizens assembly comes up with it won't it'll go into the usual difficult political maelstrom where compromises will be made, some things will move forward, some things won't, and so on. We're still dependent on that. But in order to maximize our chances of better policy outcomes, the pressure on our political systems has to be ramped up massively. That's the only way politicians will start behaving differently. Right. And, you, and you're also saying, I think, that the only way that companies will respond with the speed and depth with which they need to respond is if there's a legislative framework that compels them to do that. Pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, their investors are not going to put the pressure on them to start radically rethinking the ways in which they create wealth for those investors, for those shareholders. Consumers are never going to be consistent enough in their demands to change corporate practice. So the only people who can change the rules of the game, in this case, the game of creating wealth within a market-based for-profit economy, the only place to change the rules of the game is through government. That's literally it. So we need to be aware of that because if there's some other fancy idea that we can change the rules of the game of, of today's for-profit global economy, then you're not 
talking to someone who's connected with political reality. You're talking to a dreamer, and I wish them well, but that's largely irrelevant. So a couple of weeks ago, as you're probably aware, about 180 of the world's largest companies kind of signed up to this agreement that says, you know, the purpose of a, of a company is not to maximize shareholder returns. It's actually to do something of benefit to the wider stakeholders, right? Amazon, Facebook, all these, Apple, they all kind of signed up for this to say that we, we need to, the part of the purpose of the company is to also ensure that there's benefit to the environment, to, to the wider set of stakeholders. Is that useful? Is it an irrelevance? Is it just talking the talk, but it's, it's not really significant in, in the scheme of things? I really don't want to come across as some grouchy, uh, old antediluvian campaigner who's never got a good word to say about anybody trying to do something better. I really welcome initiatives of this kind. And it's not a bad statement. And the 180 companies, they're all US-based uh, companies, as it happens with this initiative, essentially saying, um, we'd like to behave like a B Corp, for instance, a benefit corporation. And we'd like to do as much good by way of the environment and society as we do by our investors. Okay, now look, <laughs> I'm really pleased about that. You will have noticed, however, Robin, that in that letter, there is not one single reference to the need for governments to regulate for some of those better outcomes. It's still essentially based on voluntary activity from companies done on their terms in ways that in no way damage their business model or change the share of value between what investors get and what employees get, what stakeholders get, what suppliers to those companies get. There's nothing, there's no, literally nothing that changes the share of value created in the global economy today. So you only have to poke it a little bit to realize that it's some pretty sophisticated um, progressive rhetoric about doing less damage in the world, but it's absolutely not about radically changing the nature of our wealth creating system today. Yeah, I tend to agree with you about that. And I, I also noticed that in the article that I read that was describing that, the same article was also um, sharing that Amazon had also just introduced the use of more plastic exactly. <laughs> in its packaging, exactly. which is not recyclable in order to send out more yeah, products per day. So yeah, yeah. The, the hypocrisy in some of this is pretty serious now, and we need to go on calling that out. So one of the signatories is Larry Fink, a, the CEO of BlackRock, that has his annual moment of fame every year when he issues his uh, celebrity letter to the CEOs of all the companies in which BlackRock is invested, and basically he tells them that BlackRock is not going to go on investing in them unless they do the right thing by way of the environment, society, and so on and so forth. This is one of the most hypocritical CEOs in the world. Let us be absolutely clear about this. BlackRock's investment policies are outrageous. BlackRock still invests in every fossil fuel company it can get its hands on. It has none of the checks and balances about its investment strategy that you would expect of a company with such a high level of soaring rhetoric to ensure the world does the right thing by way of investors. And frankly, I, I find this kind of stuff now increasingly intolerable from a, a, a kind of hypocrisy, an immorality point of view. And I'm getting more into a position now when Form for the Future, as you said, works very closely with a lot of companies. But boy, we have every intention of calling out 
these double standards, this kind of pattern of incumbent, entitled, privileged behavior, in which their own massive wealth, grotesquely unbalanced wealth, is never put at risk. And we have to get as radical as we need to be if we're going to continue to work constructively with the corporate world. Yeah, I hear that. And I want to come back to something you said earlier when you referred to the political outliers like Trump and Putin and Bolsonaro. And you said this is not talking about them. But let's talk about them for a moment because they also have enormous amount of power. Like Bolsonaro is basically seems to be supporting the, the destruction of the Amazon rainforest in, in, in significant and serious and worrying ways. What can we do about that, if anything? <laughs> Well, I can only trust in the power of political process here. I mean, I am fascinated at what is happening in the USA because whatever Trump does to try and persuade people that climate change is irrelevant, is not happening, is uh, counter, doing anything about it, is counter to the interests of the USA. There are now more than 62% of people, according to the latest survey, who not only subscribe to the theory of man-made climate change, but expect the government to be doing far more about it. And every single time we get another of these huge climate-induced traumas, utter disasters for people in the USA, they end up in a different place. They end up thinking to themselves, that man doesn't understand what he's talking about on climate change. We may like some of the rest of his politics, but on climate change, he's out to lunch. He's a complete zombie when it comes to this. Which is why I end up perversely, and I really do feel guilty about this, this current hurricane, Hurricane Dorian, which has hammered the Bahamas now. And as of this morning, looks as if it will somehow miss the landing in a really damaging way in Florida. A little bit of me at this point says, I want that hurricane to change course, home in on Miami or Orlando, flatten it, in the way that the Grand Bahamas has been flattened. And let a lot more people in the USA understand the nature of accelerating climate change. That's a terrible thing to end up wanting. And I'm not trying to make a joke of this. I really, really want that to happen. And I really want there to be horrific pain inflicted now on a country like America, because I've come to the conclusion that unless we have a lot more pain in the system now, hmm. the pain in the future will be uncountenanceable. This is a terrible moral dilemma, but that's where I've ended up on this. Hmm. Yeah, I just want to pause for a moment because that's quite a strong kind of invocation in a way. I understand it too, but I just want to acknowledge that. And I'm also curious because, as you know, this is this this is about leadership. These podcasts are about, <clears throat> excuse me, about the leadership that's required at the moment. And what I hear you saying is you don't really see it on a on a political level at the moment. You don't see it on a corporate level at the moment either. You see it in more of the grassroots and the civil disobedience movements that we've talked about. If you were to write a kind of job description for leadership that's required at this time, what kind of quality would you put into it? <laughs> Well, probably the kind of leadership which would make sure you never said anything like I just said in answer to your earlier question, because that's it's not really the quality of leadership that we need now, but, but you know, there we are. Um, I'm actually writing a new book, Robin. I'm writing a book called Hope in Hell, 
um, which is about this dilemma of how we deal with all of this. And I'm looking a lot to historical precedents from which we can draw inspirational strength about the uh, former examples where civil disobedience and grassroots organizations have changed things uh, really um, in, in, intensely. Um, there aren't any analogous organizations or movements or historical precedents that we can draw on here for this particular story we're facing now. There aren't any. But it's maybe looked to the nature, not so much of the organizations that spearheaded some of those social movements in the past, but the qualities of the individuals that led those organizations. And that's where we come to this notion about what is fit for purpose leadership in this climate traumatized world of ours. And it does go right to the heart of calling up these deeper strands in humankind around compassion, around empathy, around reaching out to ensure that none are left behind, about understanding the nature of intergenerational responsibilities and obligations, about building consensus positions, about being open to change in that way. And from Nelson Mandela onwards, we do have fantastic examples of leadership of that kind. And it seems to me that we're going through such a dreadful period of poor political leadership now, that people's hunger for a completely different kind of leadership is going to be really important. Tiny example, I know you're gonna always press me for tiny examples, but in Turkey, ruled by one of these autocratic despots, um, President Erdogan, um, the recent elections in Istanbul were utterly fascinating because against his Iron Man rule, um, a completely new kind of political opposition emerged, which talked openly about the need for love, about embracing each other to create the kind of future that they wanted, about tolerance, inclusivity, pluralism, about ways of opening up the future to young Turkish people completely differently. And they were successful. Erdogan forced the election to be rerun. They were still successful. And I'm looking at that election and thinking to myself, whoa, there's some power in there somewhere. And maybe that's what we're going to see now after a decade, maybe two decades of lurching bit by sorry bit towards a series of um, autocratic democracies. It's an odd combination, but that's what we've got. I think we're going to see a movement which will be completely the opposite of that, where the quality of political leadership will look totally different. And do you think that those kind of qualities, compassion, empathy, inclusiveness can be developed and trained in people? Do you think they're, they're innate or how do, we, how do we cultivate those? I'm not sure about that. Um, so one of my role models in the world today is Jacinda Ardern, the uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand. I'm half a New Zealander, so I have a stake in this. And I'm utterly fascinated by the quality of her leadership and the speed with which she's changed the nature of the debate and the way the debate is conducted in New Zealand. And it wasn't just her instantaneous response to the horrible shootings in Christchurch. It's been a lot more than that. It's really getting to grips with political culture in a very um, serious, intense way. And for me, she's probably the closest thing to a political 
model that I would urge people to look at. Um, I look at leadership around the world. I look at the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for instance, in the USA. I look at Caroline Lucas here in the UK. I look at most of the leading women politicians in the world today, and I find incredible strength in that new political energy. It's mostly women, I have to be honest. I don't find it in uh, many men. Maybe I'm a bit blindsided by this, but I don't see it spread evenly between leading women politicians and leading male politicians. I don't see that. So I think we have to find those qualities and cultivate them and encourage them and use them as role models to inspire other people. And that's where I think Greta's, Greta Thunberg's leadership, which is equally remarkable in a 16-year-old young woman, but you can see how her quality of leadership is already impacting on, I mean, millions of people around the world. It's a truly astonishing phenomenon. Yeah, so I think maybe we can start to draw this to a close. I found it very fascinating to, to hear you. And, and this question about whether we can really cultivate these qualities or not is still a bit with me. The people that you've named, who I would also hold out as, as examples of the kind of leadership that we need right now, from what I know of them and their biographies, they seem to have had that sense of compassion, social justice, inclusiveness, empathy from a very early age. Like they've just kind of grown with those qualities and have kind of blossomed into the politicians that they've become. Um, one thing that I'm often interested in is engineering kind of aha moments where you bring together unlikely people who don't normally hear each other, like leaders of senior corporations with grassroots activists and NGOs in the developing world and try to kind of engineer deeper understanding of different positions in the hope that that might bring about some kind of shift in mindset. Do you feel that that's also a useful approach? I do. No, I really do. And I have benefited massively from spending time with people who've had those aha moments. I think you mentioned, Robin, that Joanna Macy is one of your interviewees on this uh, series. And I know dozens literally dozens of people whose lives have been changed by working with Joanna. And their pattern of leadership and their way of engaging with other people has been so significantly influenced by that, that it's absolutely changed the quality of the leadership they bring to bear on these things. So I'm a huge believer in that as a way of amplifying those characteristics in people to become better leaders than they might be um, otherwise. And I think that is going to be more and more significant. Yeah, so maybe we close here. And I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you for your commitment over decades to this, to this work. And I really look forward to reading your next book, which I think is absolutely what we need right now, Hope in Hell, I think you said it's going to be called. Yeah. And um, just wish you every success in the future. And thanks again for your time with us today. Thanks, Robin. Enjoyed it as ever. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan.